Like we've all had those days where we wake up and like we're kind of a little bit toxic. The same thing can happen with algae. We have to understand that they can be productive members of that plankton community. But when there's a trigger, uh, special conditions, they do the worst, right? They grow too much and they produce toxins. Welcome to Shellphone, the podcast that gives the ocean its very own hotline. Join us as we hear from ocean stewards, discover threats to ocean health, and learn ways we can all answer the ocean's call. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and Coastal Creative. I'm Harmony Dawson, and joining us this episode is Rachel Sibler. She is a senior research scientist at the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences, in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Today we will be taking a deeper dive into harmful algal blooms, covering everything from what they are to how we research and address them. There are a variety of research projects happening at Bigelow, looking at the ocean at every point between the very small scale of cells and the very large scale of climate change. Can you tell us a little about Bigelow's mission and what ties all of their research projects together? Absolutely. So Bigelow is an independent research institution. It's state-of-the-art, has an amazing facility here on the coast of Maine. And the primary mission of Bigelow is to study the foundation of global ocean health and unlock the potential to improve the future of life on the planet uh, for all organisms, uh, people included. So the research done here at Bigelow, most of it falls under three general headers. One is ecosystem health and function. And this is where we kind of dive deep into uncovering how either organisms or even ecosystems work, getting at some of the fundamental science of just the connections in our environment um, from an organism, all, even into chemistry level, right, all the way up. Second one is uh, our changing planet. And that research focus really stands within uh, understanding how things are changing now and how they may change in the future. So gaining a current and predictive understanding of our climate and what we might do about it falls under the third one, which is ocean potential. And ocean potential is Really, the ocean covers 70% of our planet. It holds an infinite number of uh, resources uh, in terms of medicine, food, and then climate um, strategies. So how do we actually use our ocean in the best way? And also in using our ocean, how do we gain appreciation for that resource, right? A lot of you know past perception is that the ocean's beautiful to look at, but it's just this vast empty space. So gaining um, an education perspective, but also how are we going to use it uh, moving forward? I'm not sure if you have the exact numbers about this, but I'm curious how many different projects slash different researchers are currently at Bigelow and if their projects ever cross boundaries to work together. All the time. So we have a hundred, over a hundred, I think closer to 110 employees at Bigelow right now. When we talk about researchers, we're all researchers. So even the people that um, work in you know different sectors of, of our leadership team, they have an appreciation for science and they contribute to it. So we like to think of ourselves as kind of one unit, no matter what your role is in our facility, you play a role in science. And that's really important. So we have people at all different levels, um, a senior research scientist like myself, which helps to design experiments and manage and obtain the, the funds to be able to do that research to someone who is kind of boots on the ground, to someone who's playing a supportive role in making sure that the facilities that we have are actually working properly so that our science is cutting edge. And we collaborate all the time, uh, putting in two different proposals today with people here at Bigelow. One thing I really appreciate about working here is that this, like, the hallways are really buzzy with scientific conversations. Right? You're already you're always learning about what somebody else is doing and saying like, oh, that's really cool. What if we did this, right? So the way that our building is both designed and our organization is structured, it allows us to collaborate on those different levels. And beyond Bigelow, we have tons of, of national and international collaborations, but it's also kind of talking with people down the hall, right? So it's um, a really collaborative space. Cool. That's great. I know looking from the outside at science, it can seem a little isolated at times, but it's great to hear that you have such a community, a close community at Bigelow. It's hard to come up with great ideas by yourself, right? Like even if you're trying to decide what to do with your life or what to do with an outfit, right? You get feedback from people. I think science in a vacuum tends to be much less productive. 
right? Because those, uh, those diverse perspectives from everyone that you talk to really feed into that. So today we're going to be talking a lot about harmful algal blooms. But first, I wanted to hear more about your own background because I know it expands beyond algal blooms. So my question is, how did you get into the field of ocean science and what have been some of the steps along the way that brought you to what you're working on now? Thanks. Yeah. So I grew up on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, and I spent a lot of time outside fishing, crabbing, boating, being being near and on the water. And from a that childhood state, I was always curious as to, you know, changing environments and why the water, why my mom would tell me not to go swimming sometimes and why it was okay other times. I really wanted to understand why why the water changed, like why it was okay to go one week and then not swimming the next, or why it was not okay to eat oysters at certain times of year if you know we were harvesting from our local waters. So looking at both the, the color of the water and how people responded and utilized that water at different times was really where I started that question. And then I applied for jobs and I got internships and that curiosity expanded as I tried on different things. Like I tried internships to thinking that I wanted to become a science teacher and internships to grow oysters and do aquaculture and internships to you know work for NASA, for example. I did a lot of different things until I found what fit for me and the things that helped me, encourage me to get up in the morning and to do these long days, right? Like what makes you so excited that you're willing to work a really long day and dedicate your life to something? And finding that path, I think sometimes we expect to find it right away. And I think that maybe trying on a couple different uh, approaches is the best way to know that you've settled on the right thing for you for a long haul. Yeah, I think that's something we've heard from a lot of voices on this podcast. So kind of going along with that, do you have any advice for listeners who might want to get involved in ocean research um, in a lab setting or in, in other ways that you might have experience in? Like when I was in high school, I participated in Bigelow's Keller Bloom program, which was really awesome. And even though I don't want to work in a lab setting anymore, it was super eye-opening and is something that I could see myself doing. I think you just articulated the purpose of the Bloom program really well. So that's led by um, two really great colleagues, um, Drs. Nicole Poulton and um, David Fields. And that whole thing, that whole project is to bring students from across the state of Maine into a research setting to both bond with each other. But relatively few of those students do they actually expect to go into ocean sciences. Like that's not the purpose of learning about ocean sciences. The purpose is to learn about science and to gain an appreciation for the ocean and to apply those things that you've learned. But that feeling that you get of supporting science, that is the feeling that is the most important to cultivate. It isn't you know, sitting in a lab all day, but it's how are you going to then take that knowledge and pass that on to other people and other experiences throughout your life. And Bigelow is really good about building programs that are meant to reach people for where they are and to let them take it wherever they want to. It's not about making them fit into a specific box or have a specific trajectory. And I think that is um, incredibly meaningful. So for people who might want to explore that option, they could look into what programs are being offered by places that interest them and get involved that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that from a getting involved perspective, there's programs that are all over that are just, you need to look for them, right? Um, you need to kind of do the work of finding them. There's community groups to be involved in and to join, um, which are amazing, right? And honestly, those community groups tend to be, the demographic tend to be more established or, 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 or people that are tend to be a little bit older, even retired. And there's this need for people who are younger to get involved in those long-term strategies of um, developing skill sets and monitoring their systems. Uh, local researchers are always looking for assistance. So it could be applying for internships or just volunteering with groups. There's uh, In Florida, I worked in Florida for a long time with my um, for my PhD. And there's a number of groups that go out and they do samplings or they talk to people about science. At the bare minimum, talking about science, like every, every opportunity you get in a grocery store in a really positive way. I think sometimes there's a negative twist to how we talk about science now. Talk about all the good things that are happening and like how exciting that is. Both it like jazzes you up to like why we should be hopeful, 
but it also really helps people to gain support of like, you know, uh, everybody's telling me to be skeptical, but there's a lot of good here. So maybe we should, you know, maybe we should look at the good a lot more than the, the fear. So you've explored the question of how will organisms respond to changes in their environment in a variety of different places. Can you tell us about some of these experiences that you've had across the world and how they're connected to each other? Yeah. So I have been, I've traveled a lot. Um, that was one of the things I wanted in my life. Um, I had quite a bit of it by now. I've been to the Arctic so many times. I've been to the Antarctic a number of times. My research, I, I lived in Canada for a while doing research in Labrador and Newfoundland, um, uh, along the Atlantic coast, the Pacific coast, South Africa, like uh, Caribbean. All of them tie together because all of them are experiencing change at different rates and in different ways. And my research really focuses on environmental change, which can be climate and temperature, or it could be that like somebody's septic system's not working and we need to worry about that. Or wastewater treatment plants. I've done my share, you know, fair share of work in wastewater treatment plants to understand how they're working. And as a scientist, I came out thinking, wow, they're doing an amazing job, right? Like most wastewater treatment plants are just, they're taking all the stuff we flushed down the toilet and making it into something that has a re much reduced impact on our coastal ecosystem. And they're constantly challenging themselves to be better. So I think that it also gives me this perspective of the most pristine locations and what they're going through, which is really globally driven in a lot of ways to one small estuary, one small river, where humans have a really big impact and are working very hard to understand those factors that they can and cannot control. So moving on to our topic for today, what is a harmful algal bloom and how is it different from the usual presence of algae? So harmful algal blooms, I say it's when good algae go bad. So there are um, so many uh, types of algae in our in our waters, freshwater, estuaries, ocean. Um, and a harmful algal bloom is a real or perceived harm by humans and, and the environment. So when there's a disruption in the ecosystem and one algae that can either grow too much and then use up the oxygen, or if there's an algae that may produce a toxin that can be negative to an environment or to humans happens, uh, those are called harmful algal blooms because again, they're either nuisance or cause harm in the ecosystem. But at other times, they can just be you know, good members of their plankton society, right? Like it has to be an accumulation of um, of the organism that can cause harm. So what changes do you see in an ecosystem when there is a bloom? So the blooms are, are really diverse. Sometimes the, the most visible are when your water turns like a brown or bright green or even has a reddish hue, sometimes a fluorescent green hue. When the water changes color, that's the easiest way to say, like, oh, there's a bloom happening. Sometimes that bloom's really good for the ecosystem because it's an important source of food, and sometimes it can be really bad. There are other blooms, um, harmful algal blooms, that even when the water looks pretty clear, there can be enough of the species that can produce a toxin that it can have a negative effect for the ecosystem. So the term bloom just means growth, but how you can perceive it sometimes is hard to just say, hey, there's toxin there and there's not toxin there. Is there a specific threshold that decides whether we look at a bloom as harmful or not? Sure. There are tons of different thresholds. It really depends on almost on an individual species in a lot of ways. So each toxin that's produced has a different impact on humans and ecosystems. And some are grouped together, right? It just depends. But there are thresholds of when toxin production gets a to and above a certain point is when that is deemed harmful for an ecosystem and for humans. That's when you get the notice, don't go in the water. That's when you get the notice, don't drink it. Don't let your your animals, your pets play in it. There are thresholds and they're, they're well-established thresholds. When it comes to nuisance blooms, the ones that don't necessarily produce a toxin, but they grow too much. So when I say grow too much, I mean like you put your hand in the water and you can't see your hand like at the surface and it comes out kind of green and slimy or it's just really, you decrease the depth at which light can penetrate, can't see things below the water surface. That's a nuisance bloom that can become harmful because when the, the algae dies, it can use up all the oxygen through respiration and that causes uh, low oxygen events that can then kill fish and organisms within the system. And including, you know, 
blocking out light for submerged vegetation. There's a lot of impacts. So those thresholds of density of those that just grow to high biomass, that's one threshold for when it becomes potentially harmful. And then the toxin producers, it might just be the water still may be relatively clear, but the toxin levels can be higher. So there's kind of different levels. Shellfish bed closures are often done by how much of the toxin is within the shellfish, right? They take samples and they monitor for that over time. And if it rises above a certain amount or they see it increasing, where they'd say, okay, it was A amount on Monday and B amount on Tuesday and C is a bad day, we're probably going to close it just as we we know they're going to be um, accumulating and then confirm that, you know, that test was when you're, when you're right at that limit uh, or give warnings. So I think that there's a true closure happens after you reach that level of toxic within an ecosystem. That kind of reminds me that we've been talking a lot about algae that releases toxins, but over my like education, kind of until I experienced or really learned about red tide, my understanding of harmful algal blooms was that they typically involved that large amount of growth and then um, like shading of an ecosystem or taking up of that oxygen. Um, that's like the major description that I always heard. Um, yeah, it's called eutrophication when nutrients yeah. lead to to too much of a good thing, right? I've got all these sayings, but too much algae growth. Um, so even if a, a species is really good and helpful in an ecosystem, if too much of it grows, then it can be considered a nuisance or harmful species. And that's termed eutrophication, that, that response to nutrients. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see the the differences and situation, how many different situations can occur. Well, and it's also a little bit hard because some of the species that are in freshwater lakes, like uh, the those that produce microcystins are actually cyanobacteria. We call them harmful algal blooms because they're a blue-green algae, but they're technically bacteria that have their own roles. And um, it gets really confusing for people, right? When you start to use all the different terms and classifications and types and the, uh, the general response is to be afraid um, because you don't know the answer. So I think that um, education and clarity around the type of bloom and what it could mean is going to be really important. What triggers the release of toxins and are there different triggers for different algae species? Yeah, there are different triggers for different species, um, different ecosystems. Um, in terms of release, um, it can somewhat be decoupled from production. So what makes algae so certain species produce toxin? Um, there's known and unknown. So there's evidence to say that when certain nutrient ratios, like when we disrupt the natural nutrient concentrations, sometimes that's, that's their trigger. That makes them really unhappy and they produce potentially more toxin. Um, if they don't get their nitrogen and phosphorus um, within a certain range, um, that's one way. But they're, uh, you know, if they get too hot or too cold or too this or too that, um, it's really species specific and we don't know them all. Like, I just want to be really clear there's so many different types of algae that we, that contribute to harmful algal blooms that we are still learning every day. And I think there's this desire to just know the answer. But um, there's still a lot more research that's still really active to figure out what's causing it. Now, I mean, in terms of what releases the toxin, it can be just um, when the cells die. They can be when, it, for a red tide in, in Florida, it can be that the cells kind of accumulate. And even at low toxin levels, if they all burst at once, right, and there's a lot of them piled up along the coast, that can produce a lot of toxin in the water. It can be waves impact if that toxin goes aerosolized. So there's one is, you know, what are all the triggers that cause toxin production? We're still learning. And what are all the ways that it can be released into the environment, uh, physical and biological? They can, you know, there's a lot of different ways in that way too, depending on the species. There's a lot of unknowns, but lots of research going into it still. We know what can contribute to it. We know the first steps to prevent them and to keep uh, and to try to reduce them. But I think once we make those steps, 
of reducing, you know, trying to reduce temperature and nutrients. We'll get rid of a lot of the HAB events, and then we can really continue to hone in on the ones that don't fit that model, um, where those two actions are not productive in helping to reduce them, right? We're still learning the, the rest of the hundreds of species, right? With the various forms that algal blooms can take on, how much time could it possibly take for an ecosystem to come back from a bloom or for that bloom to go away? This is one of the trickiest parts of harmful algal blooms because they fall across so many different species and so many different environments. So every environment in the world um, can be affected by harmful algal blooms. Not all have been, um, but this has happened for you know thousands of years that we've seen harmful algal blooms. They happen in the Arctic. We're starting to detect things in really remote regions that haven't been touched that much by humans as compared to like lakes in Florida. Let's use Florida. It's a great example. So sometimes you can get a red tide um, in Florida that'll last um, months, uh, maybe even into it, you know, over a year at some level, right? Increasing and decreasing in the area that it takes up and the impact that it might have on an ecosystem. There's also Lake Okeechobee. So from a freshwater perspective, right, it can take years to build, but then you might have it seasonally every year a bloom in that system. And then there are other systems where it pops up once and you may not see it again for decades. So that's why harmful algal blooms can be so challenging is because we still don't understand all of the factors that contribute to blooms uh, across the world. That being said, there are two main factors that have the strongest correlation to blooms that we know happen. A, if the temperatures rise a lot, um, that can be a factor. And B, if we change the nutrients that are in the system by a lot, like if we pollute with nutrients a lot, we often see harmful algal blooms come up. So when you change a system in those two ways, pretty much predict that you're going to get harmful algal blooms um, in your future. But there are other factors that can contribute to that depending on the species. Have you seen or have we seen an increase in harmful algal blooms as human activity that relates to like putting more nutrients into the ecosystem has also increased? Absolutely. 20 or 30 years ago, this was under debate on whether that was actually true. Um, there was a, a, some people that said, oh, it's not that they're increasing in severity or abundance. It's that we're just observing them. Well, now we've been observing the same places for extended periods of time. And there are long data sets that show that in certain regions, we're seeing a specific increase in the number of blooms that occur and sometimes the severity of those blooms. So if they're more likely to produce toxin or cause adverse effects. Um, we also see an expansion in areas where there was no documented blooms before. We're seeing blooms that are bad enough that they warrant documentation and communication to the public because of those blooms being there. And we know that people have been living in those spaces, sometimes in the same houses, for, you know, 100 years. That's not something you forget if, if, if an industry is impacted. Those are things that are recorded um, and discussed over long periods of time. So we're definitely seeing increases. But there, there are some benefits, right? When people make specific efforts to reduce nutrient pollution and to really target an ecosystem that needs help, there can be benefits to reducing those nutrient loads and reducing the potential for harmful algal blooms. Will it get rid of every harmful algal bloom in that system forever? Probably not. You're going to have them pop up. Things happen. But the frequency and severity of those events, we've seen evidence that they can decrease over time. You mentioned red tide as an example of a harmful algal bloom, and that's something that we're very familiar with here in Florida. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what red tide looks like and what that means for the ecosystem and the people who are experiencing it. So I actually got my PhD studying red tide, which is one of uh, one of my my favorite species because it's really, Florida red tide's really interesting in that it's a really resilient species, right? It can use a lot of different forms of nutrients. It can produce, Revitoxin is the number one, but it can produce toxins that can potentially alter the community around it. They do really well with eating the nutrients from the fish that they actually kill. Um, so when there's a fish kill or a negative impact, they're able to use those nutrients. So they're basically kind of 
getting their their they're kind of hunting in a way um, when they're producing those those toxins that can kill the fish and and feed back into that bloom. They have a really close association with other species, um, including species that can produce nutrients in the environment for them. They can build up when there's uh, physical factors, when the ocean kind of makes them pile up closer to the coast, there can be impact. It's really interesting, but they are impacted by both local activities and global activities, right? So there can be, on a global scale, there's some that suggest that um, windstorms in Africa could lead to a fertilization event in the Gulf of Mexico of certain species that produce nutrients, right? And there's others that say the amount of nutrients and types of nutrients that we put on our our yards in Florida could wash out. There's other studies that say that it's coming from, from different places, but it's the resiliency of that that species to kind of adapt and use a number of different forms that raises the challenge, right? Like it's just super adaptable. It's a fighter and a resilient, um, a resilient species. So we're going to have to address red tide as we as we are, right? And um, this has been a long-term strategy on a number of different levels and, and every level, right? To be able to to reduce that impact long term. So when red tide, for example, happens, it's a lot of the time suggested to not go to the beach, not go swimming, but it also impacts like fisheries. Can you talk a little bit more about that human side of the impact? Yeah. So the toxin that's produced, brevitoxin, can actually aerosolize really easily, which means that with a little bit of wave action, um, it can go into the air, which is where we people, people say... Um, to stay off the beaches if it's really bad. That's one of the reasons. Um, it can go like a mile inland, I think, is the, have to check that number, but it can go pretty far inland um, on the wind. And that means that if you have asthma or if you're elderly or a young child, like you're more at risk to breathing in that toxin um, and having an adverse effect. In terms of eating it, you really don't want to eat brevitoxin. It does not uh, sit well to the stomach. So there's um, an adverse reaction of eating organisms that have been exposed to it. But on a whole nother level, when toxins accumulate and red tide comes close to shore or winds are in the right direction, you can get pileups of aquatic organisms, which are fish, dolphins, manatees, you name it, that are present in and along the Gulf Coast that can make it to our beaches. And that creates a public health risk as well. Anything that's like dead and rotting is something you should probably stay away from. And that can contribute to A, more nutrients, but B, just more bacteria and things that could be harmful to humans. So it, it definitely impacts it. In terms of fisheries, you don't want to sell a fish that could make somebody sick. That's not good for anybody. And uh, it's also not safe for fishermen to be out on water when there's aerosolized toxin um, that they could be breathing in. And fish try to avoid areas that are really not healthy for them, right? Either from, you know, dying or leaving the area. How are people informed when that kind of event is taking place? And do you think that people are informed well enough currently? I'm pro-information. So there are a number of different, um, so Florida Fish and Wildlife is one organization that has done well with communicating. USF's been developing ways of communication, Marine Labs. They are doing a much better job than they were doing, you know, 20 years ago. I think 20 to 30 years ago, it was don't talk about it, right? Because we don't want to get, make people upset or worried. And I think now there's a strong realization that information is really powerful to keep people safe. And that um, that communication, honestly, due to some scientists that really said, no, I'm not going to sit back when people could be threatened. They've led the charge for more open communication. Now, can we always communicate better? Sure. Right. Um, there's always better ways we're able to communicate um, other hazardous events uh, across the globe quickly and easily. But there's also the need for understanding. When do you raise those alarms and, and, and how do you communicate that properly without doing it prematurely? Right? Maybe something doesn't, you know, shifts and the, the toxins don't come in. Do you clear out an entire town? Do you disrupt an economy? Do you make people leave? So there's a, a lot of balance that the state uh, regulatory agencies have to have to consider when making those. But in general, more communication is always better. Uh, I like information, so I'm always yeah. on that side of things. I agree. Very important that 
people have access to learning about their environments and also staying informed on the changes that are happening. And that's part of the reason why we do this is so that we can share a little bit about different topics and different issues. I think that raises a really good point. Education to know, like when they say there's a big red tide, what should you do? What are the things that you're most concerned about in, in for yourself and your household and the actions that you can take, even if it's not, you know, mandatory, knowing what you should and shouldn't do? I wouldn't let my daughter swim in the water if there was a bloom. That's pretty straightforward. But if they have, you know, somebody has a respiratory problem, maybe that's the weekend you go away. You know, maybe it's the, you know, the weekend that you make that call. So you have previously mentioned working directly with communities to help them understand and address the impacts of harmful algal blooms. What does that work look like for you? And what is the importance of doing that in environmental science as a whole? Every scientist is different on what drives them. But one promise I made to myself as a graduate student was that the work that I do has to have a purpose. And it has to link to something that would have a greater good. Um, so when I look at the projects that I'm taking on, um, even if to some on the outside, it, you know, you may not see the link, I have to describe that that understanding for myself. So working with local communities, whether they be um, residents or uh, community groups or indigenous communities, it's to understand the environment and the potential impacts that they can predict and plan for. If there are certain groups that are using um, coastal waters for subsistence harvest or for a major food source or recreation or for their livelihood and business, it's important that they know what's happening in that ecosystem and how that might change in the future so that they can better protect themselves from big shifts, right, and unexpected change. I think, again, knowledge is really important. So I want to know, just like you want to know if you have a job in, in, you know, in two years, so does everybody. Right. So knowing down the down the road if what's going to be available to you uh, is going to be really important. Have you found that people are generally willing to trust the information that's coming from the scientific community? Or if not, what ways do you try to get past that barrier in trust? So I actually taught a course on that, which was called Hot Topics in Oceanography. And the goal of that course was to Take a second as a scientist and step back and find the common ground. If someone isn't believing the science in front of them, you have to ask why. Part of that's where are they getting their information? Where are they coming from? Is this potentially threatening their livelihood, right? You know, do they have a negative experience with science? You know, what is it that's causing them to not see things the way that you're seeing them? But also taking the step back as a scientist, what is the closest thing that you can both agree on? Right. And I think finding that space and opening up a conversation from agreement is a lot more productive than taking than starting that conversation from from the thing that you are most disagree on. So if it's a say a topic of climate change, what is the perspective? You know, where are they living? You know, what do they do for a living? What is their their connection to the land? Oftentimes you can get to a place where people can see that there's something changing, whether that's you know, if you're looking at the middle of the country, are you seeing more tornadoes than you used to see? Are you seeing less? Are you seeing more rain? Are you seeing less rain? How are things shifting on bigger timescales outside of the this season, this year, right? In the last 10 years, 20 years, what's changed? What are the things that your parents and your grandparents tell you stories about that you don't have a lived experience from your own childhood? Here in Maine, for example, you talk to anybody along the coast, you talk about how much snow there was at one point in time, like versus now, where we get a snow event and typically it melts within a week in the coastal made anyway. And other areas, you know, farther north, they didn't get as much snow. Now they're getting twice as much snow. I think that um, at the time it was an accurate description of a hypothesis of global warming and the globe is warming, but it, it misses the nuances of change um, where some places are getting slightly colder or a lot warmer. But realistically, you may not feel that difference, but you might notice that, you know, there was a tornado warning. Tornado warnings in Maine, like that's very different, right? Um, are we seeing more hurricanes? Are we seeing more um, more severe storms? It's really breaking it down to the things that people can 
can reach. And maybe you're not going to reach them that it's from CO2 in our atmosphere. Maybe that's just not something you can reach, you know, and, and come to an agreement on. But if you can come to an agreement that things are changing and we need to figure out why, that's a really important step. Then you can have the conversation later about why. And the other thing is to be open. Um, maybe there are things that I'm going to learn that I didn't know and perspectives that I can gain as to, you know, what, what other people are seeing. Cutting them off and telling them what they should be observing. It's not a great approach. Yeah. This is kind of a side note, but I grew up in coastal Maine. And just the other day, I was telling somebody that there is a lot less snow now than it seemed like there was in my childhood when it would like reach halfway up the house and all of that. But then I had to kind of hold myself back from saying that that was like the actual trend that's happening because I know there's a lot more that goes into the changes that are seen in systems and the reasons why and my perception might not be what is actually happening and all of that. <laughs> but there's actually data to support that, right? Yeah. So I think that that's where, you know, that's where your observation is actually is actually pretty accurate. Um, and the, the positive thing is that with science, you take those observations. You know that to be true. That is your lived experience. We have data that supports that lived experience. So then when you're when someone you meet someone who's skeptical, it's like, oh, well, that's just how you felt. No, actually, we've measured this at this frequency for this long. That's where science supports the lived experience. And I think gaining support for those interactions where you can validate someone's lived experience and then when needed, challenge that with the data for perception, I think that's more valuable is to actually do what you're doing. But like, you know, maybe I'll have, I'll have to dig up that figure for you and send it to you. Yeah. So you can see that like there's major changes in hydrology and storm events, right? We used to have, Maine used to have a lot of uh, storm events that would kind of the, the rain would fall in a kind of a gentle way where it would seep into into the ground a lot better. Now we have bigger storms that are putting a ton of water on all at once, and that's washing out into our rivers. The type of rain, right? Like that's something that sounds like, oh, rain's rain. Actually, it's not. The type of event matters. So getting back to the algal blooms, we talked about the example here in Florida, is there an example of a situation in Maine, maybe in like a freshwater setting that you could tell us about to kind of see the differences between the two situations? Yeah. So um, we'll do both, uh, marine and freshwater. So Maine, Gulf of Maine has its own red tide. Um, Alexandrium produces a different type of toxin. It has slightly different growth conditions, but it has its own red tide that causes shellfish closures and keeping people out of our, you know, the waters. From a freshwater perspective, if you want to compare Lake Okeechobee that has some species that produce toxins like microcystins, we also have species that could produce toxin in main lakes, but we don't see a huge amount of toxin production in main lakes yet, which means that maybe we're ahead of it, but it gives us space to learn from what those, what those ecosystems are. And I think that it's coming from a place of knowledge, right? What happened in one place um, like Florida? where you have a lot of needed farming, but that, that a lot of the nutrients kind of ran off and into a system that it's going to be really hard to remove those nutrients. The state's trying. They're funding lots of projects to try to look at these things. But how do we not do the same thing in lakes that don't have the problems yet across Florida, across Maine? But how do we prevent those those nutrient loading? Now that we know what, what one of those primary factors are, how do we prevent that moving forward? First is evaluating where are the species that are concerned? What systems don't have them? What systems do? And how do they differ? And if a system, you know, we've talked about baseline data, knowing what wasn't there 10 years ago, but what's there now really helps us to understand climate change impacts, right? We can see in a terrestrial environment, you have expansions of, of, of different plants, animals, and insects, right? That can cause damage and, um, and, and new issues for a place. The same thing happens with algae. Algae can, can move by boat, by duck, by air, right? They, you know, if you, Antarctica, you can see some phytoplankton cells all the way at the, the South Pole because it gets transported so far inland. Um, so we have to know that there's a transient nature to, uh, to everything, especially the smallest of organisms. So understanding what allows them to take a foothold, which is usually a system disruption. So either from 
us loading too many nutrients or us just really impacting an ecosystem that allows enough space for those organisms to come in and, and take hold. I also wanted to ask about something that you previously mentioned and that I read about on Bigelow's website, which is eDNA and how that may help kind of address the issue of all of the different species and different forms of algal blooms. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Sure. So I work with eDNA through a bunch of collaborations. Uh, one of the scientists here at Bigelow is Dr. Peter Cantley, or Pete Cantley, and Robin Slight. Those are two researchers here. eDNA is environmental DNA. And this is a sample. We've done this up the coast of Canada. We do it um, around Maine. But it tells you what organisms are there with two slightly different methods, but mostly the same. Um, you can tell what bacteria are present, um, which can tell you about potential pathogens for humans and things like that. But it also tells you one method is uh, it tells you about everything from phytoplankton to whales, right? It tells you all of the eukaryotic organisms that might be present in an ecosystem. It gives you a fingerprint of who might be there. And that's really important because when we talk about harmful algal bloom species, it tells you what organisms may be present and potentially can impact an ecosystem. If they're not there, then you're less likely to have a problem. There are other methods that allow you to look at what their potential is. Do those organisms, just because it's the same species, maybe this group of species or this, this specific um, population doesn't have the ability to produce toxin and while another one does. So imagine you have a bloom but it can't possibly do the bad things that you're worried about. You certainly don't want to do that thing and like communicate with all of society that it's going to produce a toxin when it can be happily growing, doing its own thing and never produce a problem. So understanding if it A, can do the bad thing that you're worried about, B, is it there to in the first place? And then, you know, see what is the potential environmental factors that could, you know, drive that organism to, to have a negative impact. But eDNA is going to be useful in a lot of ways. One's perhaps, um, another one is restoration of, of coastal waters. What species are there? Are there invasive species coming in? If you're restoring a waterway, are the species that you want to come back actually coming back? And when, right? When can you start to see those impacts? It is super hard as uh, an individual to be able to assess all the dynamics of an ecosystem, right? And sometimes it starts with just a few fish returning to a river. It'd be nice to capture that without have you know, when you can't get them in a net or you can't get them in any other way, is to, to be able to see that signal going up the, the stream. Where does eDNA come from? Is it like found in like water samples, sediment samples, or some other source? How do you evaluate? DNA is everywhere. So in my office, right? Anywhere. So it's just environmental DNA. So you're looking at a, a whatever whatever location you really are interested in. Aquatic systems are easy. You can look in sediments. You can look pretty much anywhere that you can get enough um, DNA to actually uh, assess it. But for the eDNA for, that Bigelow works on is typically in water. And that can come from freshwater all the way to marine uh, and any, any ecosystem from, you know, have some collections close to the Arctic all the way to using eDNA, you know, across the, the globe. And it's to see but you can target it. So you can look for specific harmful algal species. It gives you everybody, but you can then query that data to understand, okay, can we can we determine which fish are there or what, what other species might be in that water? But again, people use it from sediments. They use it in a couple, you know, many different places. What is being done to help prevent or minimize the impacts of harmful algal blooms in government settings or in scientific communities? We are in a space of learning a lot, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And it really depends on the species that's present and the system that you're, you're working on. Initially, there was, you know, effort in a lot of different places to try to remove harmful algal blooms by really um, finding ways to kind of kill off the, eco like the lake, right? And then it, hopefully killing off all the bad guys so that the good guys come back. That doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work because... When you, when you change a community significantly and dramatically, often the organisms that can sustain those dramatic shifts or, or come back are those that are actually the resilient harmful one, potentially harmful one. So that's not, that's not good. And the second option is that we're, again, that link with nutrient pollution that we talked about, temperature and nutrients. 
we're finding that reducing nutrient pollution has a huge benefit. So understanding where those nutrients are coming in, what the form is, and how they're being used by the community, really important. What happens sometimes is that there can be legacy nutrients, which means that once you load a system with so many nutrients, it's really hard to get those nutrients out. So then every year they kind of fall to the, to the sediments and then they get re-released and resuspended. So it's kind of, that's where it's, that vicious cycle happens, like Okotobi, for example, um, where you're kind of, you've got so many nutrients within the system that even if you stop loading tomorrow, you're still going to have a problem for a while. So that's when new strategies come in. And there are a number of um, ideas that are being tested. But one is, how do we remove the nutrients, the historical nutrients, and the nutrients that are coming in to prevent blooms? And then if you get a bloom, how do you start to remove the cells without releasing a lot of toxin or causing other adverse effects to the ecosystem? And I think that one thing that's really important is to have a holistic ecosystem view when dealing with things like HABs because there's so many connections that we don't even know about as scientists. We know that there are a ton of connections between like the bacteria and the other plants and nutrients and temperature and all these things, but that's probably only scratching the surface. So we really have to think about how to best heal it. And, um, you know, in a system that is always starting to see nutrient pollution, Things that we can do ourselves is don't pull out the aquatic vegetation, even if it doesn't look great, even if it's not that crystal clear water. Um, that's helping you to prevent some of these harmful algal blooms. Um, uh, most of the time, that's very healthy ecosystem. Is to really redefine what a beautiful ecosystem looks like, right? Um, and understand that not all green out green water is bad. Sometimes that's what's feeding all of our organisms and making things the most healthy and the most productive ecosystems, right? Is because you do have algae there. But it's understanding what the potential threats are and when to leave things alone and when to have in intervention. Yeah, that reminds me of an earlier question or thought that I wanted to bring up about how harmful algal blooms can kind of change the feeling that people have towards all algae or the understanding that they have of algae being good or bad or that's yeah. like judging you on your worst day you know yeah. like we've all had those days where we wake up and like we're kind of a little bit toxic the same thing can happen with algae we have to understand that they can be productive members of that plankton community but when there's a trigger uh, special conditions they do the worst right they grow too much and they produce toxins. But instead of looking at the algae as being the one that's bad, maybe we need to be a little bit more self-reflective of like, what are what are we doing as, as um, people impacting an ecosystem that's causing this trigger to happen? And sometimes people, you know, algae, just like people get triggered and it's a one-off and it doesn't happen very often. And like, you just have to accept that that was one of those events that you can't predict. But if we're constantly stressing out these organisms by adding too many nutrients or, or altering their environment, they're going to be triggered more often. Just think of it the same way that we treat our friends is understanding, you know, how to kind of back off of all those stressors that we keep piling on an ecosystem, right? If somebody's super stressed out with everything that's kind of hitting them, they're not, they're not kindest. Same thing with an ecosystem. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Is there anything that building off of um, one of my last questions about what government or scientific communities are doing. Is there anything that people can do as individuals to help limit the impacts of harmful algal blooms? And we've kind of touched on it by talking about like fertilization and things like that. Um, yeah, I think that we could use peer communication in the best way possible. Um, if you know, you compliment somebody on like a new haircut or like a new, a new approach to life or like they're doing something healthy, um, and encourage them to do more. I think that we can decide, you know, what good landscaping look like, looks like, what a healthy ecosystem looks like, what usable spaces look like, right? You're ripping out all of the, the vegetation so that you have a white sand beach doesn't make for a healthy ecosystem. Maybe we need to redefine that, you know, what, what beautiful is in a space and what healthy is in a space. What are some ways that different organisms 
cope with harmful algal blooms? So it depends on the species of, of algae and the toxin that they produce, um, if it's really toxic. So if, um, if in a, uh, we call it biomass blooms, but when it's really a high concentration of cells, oftentimes why don't the fish escape of, out of a river is because the bloom will happen kind of halfway down the river and the fish then can't escape because they're trapped by that low oxygen event and they can't make it through that system um, to areas that are are more hospitable, right? Like the oceans, you know, areas that aren't uh, low in oxygen. Um, in terms of toxin, um, humans don't know unless we test it if we're eating shellfish or fish that have been exposed to those toxins. So one is they could be existing in the water and not um, not realize how threatening or new that that toxin is. Um, another is they could be eating organisms that are accumulating that toxin, um, either you know by mistake. But during a fish kill, uh, if you go out on the beaches of Florida after a fish kill, you've got lots of seagulls and things that are you know consuming the dead fish that are washing up. You've got other organisms, uh, dogs even that kind of go and are trying to scavenge when when things are living kind of um, meal to meal, um, any meal can be really important. Uh, the other thing is when you have ocean currents that can blow offshore blooms inshore, sometimes organisms don't have enough time to, to respond if, if, they're, if they're even able to know to get out of the system, right? That's really debatable in some cases. If you have a really long, couple mile long um, space of, of a red tide coming into the beach, and starting to rupture all those cells and release that toxin, escaping that can be quite difficult. Um, so I think that, you know, humans got really sick and we're continuing to get sick over time because we can't, without the proper technology, detect it. So I think animals are kind of like us. You just don't know until you're, you're kind of in the situation in a, in a lot of ways. Or if you're shellfish, you can't move anyway. So you kind of just gotta <laughs> hunger down and hope to get through it. Thanks for tuning into Shell Phone. To learn more about our projects, visit our website at breachthesurface.org or social media at Breach the Surface. To learn more about Rachel's work, you can visit Bigelow's website at bigelow.org or on social media at bigelow underscore laboratory.